right, so we will begin the book of Daniel this morning. I'm very excited about it. I, I've talked to some of you, and, and there seems to be a general sense of excitement about it, uh, which is good. Uh, but there, when I started seminary, I entered in expecting to be educated a lot about a lot of things that I didn't know about, and that happened. Uh, but one thing that surprised me pretty regularly was, uh, especially in history um, classes surrounding books of the Bible and in theology classes, uh, it felt very worshipful. And I would go in ex- expecting a lecture to hear about whatever it is. In, this, in our case today, it's Daniel. And wanting to learn more about who this is, how it fits into the context of Scripture, what it means for our life today. Uh, and, and I don't know why it, was, it hit me in this way, but it was always so surprising when I would leave those classes in awe of God, and, and I'd feel my spirit stirring with excitement for the Word of God, and I was hungry to learn more. And so my hope is this morning, as we, as we have an introduction to this book, uh, that you will feel, in a, in a sense, that same way. Uh, though this isn't a lecture, I hope not, uh, that you will learn about Daniel, that you'll learn information that you didn't know before, that you'll better see how this book was written in the context historically and, and where it fits in Scripture, and, and that you'll have an excitement in you to get into this series, but also to study on your own this wonderful book of the Bible. And I've, if I were to survey the room, I would imagine there's not a lot of information already in your mind concerning Daniel. In fact, I know this because I have surveyed. <laughs> I asked several people this morning and before today that just what do you know about Daniel? Just a simple question. And, and immediately, almost with all of them, it's, it's off-putting, like... Um, First of all, I wasn't expecting this random question, but also, I guess I really don't know that much. So obviously, the lion's den comes to mind first. And then for some, that's it. Others can remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace. And then maybe the handwriting on the wall. So these major stories. And if you were raised Baptist or in a more conservative denomination, that's about all you know about Daniel. You stayed way away from the rest of that book because it, it gets... A little bit crazy towards the end. But if you were raised in a more charismatic church, this is from the survey. This is people I spoke to. More charismatic background. Then you're very familiar with the latter half of the book. And it almost is like scary now. Because you're like, we focused way too much on that when I was a kid. And I don't know how the world's going to end. I don't want to know. Let's just stay away from it. And so there's this weird sense when we look at Daniel, we don't really know what to do with it. And this this is across the board. Even scholars study this book for years and still, there's questions that remain, some things to put together. There's all kinds of arguments about who wrote the book of Daniel. Is it, is it actual, are they actual stories? Does it belong in Scripture? I mean, people want to fight about all these different things. We're not going to do that. We're going to take it for what it is, and we're going to walk through it chapter by chapter, so, that, so you know. We're going to go through it chapter by chapter, so you can come prepared next Sunday to get into chapter 1. And every Sunday after that, open to how God can, can move and work through this Book of the, the book of the Bible, and I challenge you to read ahead. Like I want you to read ahead, read different translations, read commentaries, however you want to study it, but also meditate on this Word of God. See that it, it can speak for itself, and that it speaks into your life. That it's applicable, that not just for Daniel, but for the Old Testament as a whole. That we would value it as the Word of God. That it, that it moves and it's living and it's active and it, it does something. It's not just words. It does something. It changes things. And that we could see how this ties into 
the, the grand narrative of Scripture, that we could see what it is God is communicating to us and to the Jews in that day and to the world through Daniel. And, and you may know that, that there's misinterpretations of Daniel that lead to cults like the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses. We're, we're not going to be concerned with our thinking and our logic to, that would mislead us to believe wrong things. We're going to trust the Spirit as we dig into this. We're going to trust, we're going to trust church history. We're going, to, we're going to trust that we as a church will see the Word of God is applicable and relevant, even the Old Testament, for us today in Monroe, 2017. So we're going to make this as simple as we can. We're going to walk through it as simply as we can. So let's, let's get into it. What is and who is Daniel? So preparing any book of the Bible, when you get into it, you have to value context. Context matters. If, if somehow we look at Daniel and we apply it to our culture today and it doesn't fit, the meaning doesn't fit the culture of the day it was written, then we're wrong. That's breaking the rules of hermeneutics. It has to apply. So what, what do we understand Daniel writing to these people in this way for, the, for these purposes? And then we cross this bridge in contextualization, and we understand how that applies today. And it has to be done in that way. So in understanding context, there's the historical setting. And then there, and, and the historical setting of Daniel's fascinating. And it, it could, we could go on forever talking about it. Today we're going to only talk about it briefly. Next week we'll cover it a little more. But then there's also the literary contextual setting that matters significantly for Daniel because it's, it's a major prophet, and, it, and major prophet doesn't mean it's a better prophet. It's just longer, and Daniel's actually shorter for a major prophet. But there's also some different genres within the book. And so when we get into specifics next week, we'll talk more about Babylon and where they are. This is 600 years before Christ was born. And so we're going to understand how, they be, how the Jews became exiles to Nebuchadnezzar and and how Daniel specifically was chosen among others as young and healthy and useful to, to serve King Nebuchadnezzar in his court. But this ancient world that we're looking at is vastly different than our world. Like different century before Christ was even born. Different part of the world altogether. A kingdom that operates far different than democracy that we call America. It's it's far different in thinking, far different in, in how they feel things, how they process information, how they apply things. It's, it's vastly different. But as we get into this, you'll see that it's remarkably similar. That though things are so different, mankind is very much the same. The same evils grip our hearts. We're persuaded in the same way to, to feed our selfish desires. The tension we, we sense between Adam and, and God in the garden when he and Eve are exiled for their sin is the same as, as the tension we have today between us and the kingdoms of earth when we are trying to live for the kingdom of God. And so though Monroe 2017 is vastly different, we will see pretty clearly that we still want to be God. And we seek to establish our own kingdoms that are the antithesis of God's kingdom but there's a greater power. No matter how arrogant we are, how, much we, how highly we think of ourselves, there is a greater power, a greater king. And we become more blind to how, fall, how far we fall short of his glory, just as the kings of old. And Babylon specifically, if you remember Genesis, the Tower of Babel, 
You recall the Tower of Babel. The same kingdom has been trying to be the best kingdom in the world since then. And this is Babylon. And so we find a unique perspective with Daniel. An exile in Babylon serving the king. He's virtually the, the chief advisor to King Nebuchadnezzar. The chief of staff. Yet he's devoted to the Lord. So I can't imagine having a chief of staff devoted to the Lord. And the way we see in Daniel, this man, this man is a great man of faith and of prayer. And you, you may know that's why he was thrown into the lion's den, because he refused to turn from his God. And, and some of the things we have in our culture that worship Daniel and we exalt him higher than we should, because there's very little said bad about him in Scripture. It really nothing. Probably the only major character of Scripture that we don't have anything bad on. Him. Maybe Joseph, but even he was like boastful to his brothers, like, check out my coat. You know, dad likes me more than he likes you. So I got him sold into slavery. Shut your mouth, Joseph. He learned his lesson. All right, anyway, back to Daniel. So when we look at Daniel, we see him as this great man of faith, great man of prayer. And most of that comes in the first half of the book. And then the second half, we see him as a prophetic voice of, of apocalypse, the, the prophetic voice. And, we, and that's the part we, we don't really know what to do with so much. But we're going to see that these things tie together beautifully. And, and when we look at these stories and the way he writes and how he depicts things in the dreams and the visions and how he depicts things in the stories, we see that he's a, he's a wonderful storyteller. He's a visionary. The fiery furnace and, and the hand, disembodied hand, writing on a wall. And, and the lion's den and, and the details he used, like they leave the furnace, they don't even smell like smoke. The detail he uses, he, he's... His imagery is dramatic and vivid. It's beautiful. And when we slow down and we really look at it, we'll see that there's also times where it's a little unpleasant. But it's necessary because he's unveiling the horrific nature of sin that grips the human heart. It would would move us to exalt ourselves above God. And it's necessary we see these vivid images. It's necessary we get a good picture of it. The point, though, isn't always clear. So what is the point of Daniel? Why is it in there in the first place? Why do we tell these stories with talking vegetables? I don't know. What, what's, I don't get it. I like it when I was a kid. Chocolate factory? Yes. But why do we do this? What is, how do we see Daniel applied to our lives? So is it just about following Daniel's example? Like I said, he was a good man. He was righteous in a lot of ways. He was devoted to God. He was faithful. Even in the midst of, of being a slave to Babylon, he was faithful to God. Despite the laws telling him to turn from his God, he never turned from his God. It's amazing. Yes, he's a great role model. Should, should that be the point of Daniel? That's all we've seemed to have used it for. Dare to be a Daniel, right? Daniel diet. Let's just do what Daniel did. He seemed to be awesome. Name, let's name our kids Daniel and Danielle. Uh, side note, this guy told me one time he couldn't believe the Bible because some of the names were ridiculous, but some are so common. Like, why, why would they give such common names and expect me to believe it? <laughs> I was patient. You know that people name their kids after people from the Bible. That's why they're common. This is a difficult conversation. Anyway. Name your kids Daniel and Danielle and John. 
all the Johns, shout out, Joseph. There's a lot of them in here. Aaron, well, I forgot an A, but whatever. So, is Daniel just a role model? I, I think he can be. But I think if we just make it about Daniel being a role model, following what Daniel did, then, then we'll, miss it. we'll miss the point. We'll miss the meaning of this wonderful book. In fact, the application can become legalistic, as if that's what it means to follow Christ, be like Daniel. But the book of Daniel, despite the title, is not about Daniel. Right? Who's it about? Jesus. It's always a safe answer. It's about Jesus. But how? How do we know this is about Jesus? Jesus told us it is. Right? The road to Emmaus. Right? The two disciples walking the road to Emmaus. And this is after Jesus had died and was resurrected. They're hearing these rumors of Jesus. They hadn't seen him yet. But they're walking, they're discussing all that's happened. The, the king, or the, the rulers of the time, attacked Jesus, accused him of these things, and put him to death. And so they're anxious about this, because this was their savior, this was their leader. Now they're hearing these strange rumors about Jesus being resurrected. And he shows up on the road, joins them, but he keeps himself hidden from them. And he's, he's like, what are y'all talking about? And they tell him all this. And then here's his response in Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, which is the beginning of the Bible, and all the prophets, which includes Daniel, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So after the, after the resurrected king has has made himself known to his disciples. He's still encountering those who don't understand, including these other followers. And he says, how are you you still missing it? How do you not get this? It's all about me. Let's take a look. Consider Moses and the law. Consider the, the history of Israel. Consider the prophets. It's all about me. So Jesus preached through Daniel to these guys better than we're going to preach through Daniel. But we can at least go into it with right perspective because by the grace of God, we have the New Testament. And he doesn't have to call us foolish ones who don't get it. Though many in our culture continue to wrongly apply Daniel because they don't make it about Jesus. We're not going to do that. But as we work through this unbelievable book of the Bible, these like literally unbelievable, these stories that are unbelievable, impossible stories that can easily pass as fiction and legend of old. As we walk through these encounters of this mysterious apocalyptic material, as as we see the need to believe, we have to stop often and ask, do we believe it? Do we believe this actually happened? And, And do we believe it's all about Jesus? And are we willing to take the time and the effort to walk through this and see Jesus? We'll be faced with all kinds of challenges. This, it goes against the laws of nature. We're going to be challenged to see the sovereignty of God in all things, even difficult things. So don't be passive about this. Let's be willing to ask questions. Do we believe God would allow his people to be enslaved by another nation? Do we believe God would speak to his people through the dreams of an evil king? Do we believe that God has delivered men from literal fire 
that was so hot it was killing guys outside of the furnace? Do we believe that men could walk into that and walk out and not even smell like smoke? Do we believe that a man could go into a lion's den and come out with not a mark on him? Are are we content to have a God who just set things in motion and let it play out and, and say he's not in control of it, he's just allowing it? Or do we believe that God has planned for our exile and planned for our suffering so that he could provide deliverance? Do we believe he's at work in the good things and in the bad things for our good and for his glory? Do we see him establishing his kingdom and graciously accepting us rebels into that kingdom, though we're fickle in our allegiance at every turn? Do we believe these things? Do we and can we trust the word of God is true? Do we trust Jesus in spite of our doubts? Let's just be honest about this struggle. Because we're not going to fully understand Daniel. I've been looking at it for months and there's still things. I'm like, I don't get this. But hopefully, as we preach through this, God will be glorified, and and maybe even in spite of our teaching, God will be glorified, because we're certainly going to be imperfect, and we're going to have disagreements along the way, but can we trust God to use his word to give us faith, to give us sight, to open our ears, to hear, to transform lives? Do we see the book of Daniel affecting the crossing church in a way that we would be sent out as missionaries to the city to bring hope to those who don't have hope? To to look to Christ in the midst of trials and difficult things. To remember we're not home here. This, This is not our home. And that's a bit of the historical context. As for the literary context, the the pictures we see in this book are accessible to us because they're gifts from God to us. So we can see them. And we'll find this message to be better if we see it rather than try to think through it logically. It's something to be felt instead of parsed into oblivion. Like we need to actually be there. We need to feel it and see it. So if we're not careful, we can make the mistake of too too narrowly defining things and and trying to fit it into a genre that it doesn't necessarily fit into or, or trying to apply it in ways that we shouldn't apply it. But much of this book is visual. So we need to we need to expound on it. We need to expose in the way God intended. It's like he's saying to us, come here. Come look and see who I am. Come look and see what I've done. Come look and see what I'm doing. Take it all in. All right? So like the book of Revelation, we need to try to examine. We, we don't need to try to examine every detail and allegorize everything. Otherwise, we'll miss the message of the book altogether. The, the, that's one reason we're going to walk through it slowly one chapter at a time instead of Instead of breaking up smaller and going years trying to figure out everything about it. We're steering clear of getting lost in the minutia. We don't, we don't want to speculate our understanding. So we're, we're encouraging the church. We're encouraged ourselves to approach Daniel with joyful obedience. Trusting God with all of it. He's sovereign and in control of all of it. The spirit is living in you. And can bring understanding where there's not understanding. But let's, let's dig in our heels and let's go after it. And let's hear these stories like we're hearing them for the first time, like we're witnessing them 
And let's work to hear the prophecy of Daniel in light of all of Scripture, in light of all that we know of God. And so we can trust the Spirit has brought Daniel and these stories and his prophecies together and woven them together for us to read them here and today and to see truth and to be encouraged. As for the structure, there's actually a genre change in the middle of the book. So the first half of the book, the first six chapters, are history. In fact, I would say they're redemptive historical narrative. So if we just look at it as history, then we'll study it like a history book. But this is history that points to something beyond it. This is, this is foreshadowing history. And it, it doesn't just point way into the future. It also points to the second half of the book. So this chapter 7 through 12 are apocalyptic literature. It's, it's visions given to Daniel by God to tell of the future. Apocalypse, as Jared indicated last week, that apocalypse isn't, it doesn't carry all the connotations we've applied in, our, in a modern-day culture. It's not this doomsday. It's not the end of all things. It's nothing like to be worried about destruction. There is some like uh, eschatological meaning behind it. There is some like, sorry, end times. There is some like ending of things. It points to that, but it's not primarily what it's about. It simply means, apocalyptic simply means revelation, right? God's revealing to Daniel something about, something that man doesn't know. So God has these two understandings, his will that will be done, and there's this hidden will. And it's, it also will be done. But we don't know everything God's thinking. We don't know everything God knows. He's going he's gonna to reveal it to us as he wills. Daniel and Revelation are examples of that. And there's some others like Mark 13. So these visions are meant to assure God's people in that time that he knows where they are. He knows they're in exile. He knows they're suffering. But there's a rescue plan. There's a kingdom greater to come. Unlike any that the earth has ever seen or ever will see. The Son of Man will be sent by the Ancient of Days to bring vindication, to bring salvation, to bring reward to the people of God, to all who believe. And of course, there's more to it. We'll get into those as we get to those chapters. There's this profound interconnectedness between these two halves, the the history and the apocalypse. There's this profound connection that we'll see within within the book. So try to hang on to these thoughts. First half, it's going to be on the screen for you. The first half we have... Nebuchadnezzar attacks God's people. This is the king of Babylon. He plunders their wealth, takes it for their own. He takes the best of the men, and and he brings them back to Babylon to be his slaves. The the idea behind Nebuchadnezzar's purpose is to overtake the world. He's not just enslaving people like Pharaoh. He instead wants to assimilate people into his culture. He wants them to be like Babylonians. And then fast forward, Belshazzar, not to be confused with Belshazzar, which is Daniel's Babylonian name, Belshazzar is... Nebuchadnezzar's son, and he uses the vessels, instruments of worship from the temple in Jerusalem to praise false gods. That's in chapter 5. In the midst of all this, God's people are tempted constantly to compromise, to turn away from the true God to the gods of Babylon, and they're even threatened with death. We see that chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. These arrogant and ignorant kings of earth exalt themselves until God brings them to their own end. So with Nebuchadnezzar, he's humbled. With Belshazzar, he's killed. In, verse, in chapter 2, we see that God will establish an everlasting kingdom. In chapter 4 is where King Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. In chapter 5, it's where his son is killed. So then, then we see the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian names that they're more commonly known by. Come out of a fiery furnace. 
And Daniel comes out of the lion's den in chapter 6. And we see that these are symbols of resurrection. So they're not actually dead, but they're coming out of sure death. And so these symbols of resurrection obviously point beyond the, the circumstance. Points to something later on in Daniel, but also the future. That God will one day resurrect the dead. All of, all of it is a means by which God is pointing to something more. There are actual stories. These are actual things that happened in history, but they're, they're foreshadowing. God's pointing to something beyond them. They're not meant to be prescriptive. They're descriptive, telling us of something, of something more. That's how it would have been understood to these people in this time. That's how we must understand it now. But they're not an end to themselves. There's an end coming. And we see this immediately uh, unveiled in chapters 7 through 12, the second half of this book. Uh, if you remember the ones, the points just made, evil kings will attack God's people. Chapters 7, 8, 9, and 11. Destroy the temple and put a, try to put a stop to uh, the worship of God and, and ending the sacrificial system. That's chapters 8, 9, and 11. Each of these kings will exalt themselves in the place of God. That's chapter 7, 8, and 11. So we're seeing this connection already. This is talking about Babylon, but also more to come. In the midst of, of these things, God's people will suffer persecution because they're in exile. That's 7, 8, 9, and 11. But they are called to be faithful and sure of their hope in God because he will deliver them. Just as he's delivered Daniel from the lion's den and Shagrat, Meshach, and Abednego from the furnace. There, there will be persecution, but when the persecution's over, God will raise the dead. We see this clearly in chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So all who die will be resurrected, some to live forever in the kingdom of God. So this, this mystery we see in 7 through 12 points us back to the beginning of Daniel. Or in fact, Daniel in the beginning points us forward to this and beyond. Because there's more to come. There's more kingdoms to come. There's more suffering to endure. There's more exile. But there is hope because there's a kingdom coming. Daniel learns that this pattern of powerful kings and kingdoms that position themselves against the true God and the true kingdom will be on repeat throughout history. At least these 70 years that he's in Babylon, if you didn't know, this isn't, these 12 chapters are within 70 years of this man's life. Basically his whole life he enters as a young man and, and lives there 70 years. Enduring this, staying faithful to God. And God gives him this vision that says that 70 years isn't the end. There's more to come for God's people after kingdom, after kingdom, after kingdom. But there is hope. When exactly it all comes to an end, Daniel's not clear. We're not clear, but we know how it comes to an end. The ancient of days will deliver his people. And he will do so by the person and the work of the Son of Man. So we see through history of the first half and through through the the mystery of the second half, we see one thing stands out. God is in control. God is the king of kings. God has a plan. There's hope for the people. The Lord is sovereign. Now, that's fairly simple, even though it's not totally simple. That's fairly simple. The structure actually gets far more complex. And I really wrestled with, do we want to go there? But I think it's amazing. So at least it fascinates me, maybe to fascinate you. What really brought me to this is I know you A lot of you are very intellectual. You want to know this. We can't get caught up in the intellect, but it's so important that we understand Daniel when we head into this as best we can. Because if we're honest, 
Daniel, I don't know if Jared would agree, Daniel's probably the most risky book of the Bible to preach. It's really risky because it can be, we can be so distracted. But it has purpose. It does belong. So, hopefully you're fascinated. This is fascinating to me. There's a major odd feature with Daniel that if anyone back in that day would have picked it up, they would have seen it right away, and we totally can't see it. Any guesses? Daniel was written in two different languages. What? Yes. I know, it's weird. More obvi- or the more obvious one is Hebrew, but also it was written in Aramaic. So these two languages, Aramaic, the language of Babylon, is, is the, the lingua franca, if you're familiar with the term. Like, if, well, if you move to America, we force you to speak English, so it's hard to pick that one. So, it, like, for example, in Germany, if there's a Turkish man and a Bulgarian man and me, well, not me, a guy who speaks German, but also another language, because <laughs> I don't speak German. Let's just say I speak German. That makes it easier. If we're all three standing in a room in Germany, we're not going to speak Bulgarian. We're not going to speak English. We're not going to speak Turkish, even though those are our mother's language. That's, that's our heart language. That's how we understand the world. We're going to speak the lingua franca, German. Understand? So Aramaic, the language of Babylon, is what every, it's the trade language. Everyone has to know how to speak Aramaic. So the nations, this is the language of the nations at that time. Later on, it would become Koine Greek and Alexander the Great, and then even the Roman Empire used Greek as, as the lingua franca. And so in this time, ancient Aramaic was the language of the empire. It was the language of the land. It's how people communicated to one another. Although you were bilingual or trilingual and you knew many languages, including your own, Aramaic was the one everyone had to speak. So he wrote in Aramaic. And, and the reason all this matters, of course, Hebrew, if you don't know, is, is the language of God's people. This is what most of the Old Testament's written in. So why does this matter? <clears throat> this frames the book for us but it also uniquely calls our attention to something that we would otherwise miss. Daniel is, for our sake and for the sake of everyone, addressing two different groups of people, clearly. So the part in Aramaic includes the Hebrews because they know Aramaic. The part in Aramaic is introduced in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and then starts in Aramaic. So chapter 1 and all the way up to the first part of chapter or. Verse 4 of chapter 2 is actually cut in half. So 4a is in Hebrew. And then Aramaic starts until the end of chapter 7. And then 8 through, through 12 are all in Hebrew again. So Daniel's writing to the nations when he speaks in Aramaic, when he writes in Aramaic. Those who know Aramaic, he's writing to the nations. In the parts in Hebrew, he's writing specifically to the Hebrews, God's chosen people. Now, not to get too distracted by that. Aramaic, the Aramaic section doesn't right away make total sense, but as we see how it connects the different parts of the book, we see something a little more clearly. So the reason I'm telling you all of this that may bore some of you, chapter 2 and 7, both in Aramaic, are connecting the four world empires. That's King Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the, the first dream of Daniel. Chapters 3 and 6 present the narratives of mighty deliverance. It shows that God Almighty is the Almighty God, and that's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and David. Deliverance from the furnace, the deliver, or Daniel, deliverance from the lion's den. That's 3 and 6. And then surrounding that, 4 and 5 describe God's judgment on the kings of the world. All of that is in Aramaic. So it's like proclaiming to the nations, this is our God. The God who's over all of your gods. 
the king that's above all of your kings. This is who he is. Let the nations hear this. Babylon, hear this. You will be humbled because this is our king. And all kingdoms to come will be humbled because this is our king, the king above all kings. And then in Hebrew, to the people of God, he's saying in chapter 1, we're going into exile. We're taken into slavery. But we will not submit to the slavery. We will not conform to Babylon. We'll see that in chapter 1 next week. And then he ends it, 8 through 12, expanding God's purposes, making clear to the Jews, though we are in exile, we will be delivered out of exile. And it's beautiful how he weaves this together. So he wrote to the kings and the kingdoms of the world relating to God, and he writes on a very personal level to the people of God, telling them there's reason for hope. Remember who your God is, because they read the Aramaic part too. Remember who your God is. See what he can do. See who, what he's done. And trust he has a plan. He's giving hope to them, and he's giving hope to us. Fix your eyes on the salvation. Fix your eyes on the Son of Man. Because our Father, the Ancient of Days, is a faithful King for our good and His glory. So these personal things and these things concerning all the nations are masterfully tied together. So here's where our Western English-speaking mindset can throw us off a little bit. We want to just walk through this straightforward. We want to see the introduction. We want to see tension build, climax, and resolution. But Daniel didn't write, that, write it in that way. So it's not like walking down a sidewalk. It's not like walking upstairs. All right, so try to imagine this. Let's get, let's get the imagination ready. It's like being on an escalator that moves in a spiral while sitting on top of a moving sidewalk. That's walking through the book of Daniel. All right, so we, what does that mean? We're circling the central truth, right? Through no effort of our own, really. We're not trying to parse it. We're not trying to figure it out. We're just on an escalator circling the central truth, right? We're seeing it. We're taking it all in. But we're also moving forward as we're moving upward. We're understanding as we go along. And the reason it's like that is because it's, it's, a, it's a certain structure that's used a lot in poetry, a chiastic structure, and that centers around a center point. So let's look at it again as we build on this. I'm going to use my hands. So four and five, all right, chapters four and five. This is... The proud kings being humbled. That's King Nebuchadnezzar being humbled. That's King Belshazzar being murdered, killed by God. All right? So this, this is a center point for us. The kings of earth will be humbled. Surrounding the center point as we move up and forward and also backwards. There's chapters 3 and 6. So we, we see clearly that Daniel and his friends are delivered from death. Surrounding that in chapter 2 and in chapters 7 through 9, we have depicted these four wicked kingdoms of earth that will precede the ultimate rule of Christ and the eternal kingdom of God. So that's surrounding this. And then surrounding that, we have chapter 1, the introduction to all of this. We're going into exile. In chapters 10 through 12, God's faithful and he will deliver us from exile. So, so imagine, I don't know how you want to imagine it. That there's a center point and we're building on it on either side. And Daniel, it's like he writes the story forward and then he tells the story backwards. But it all draws our attention to this central truth. This theme that, that's so imperative that we, we grasp and we hold on to as we work through all of this. God is sovereign over all of history, over all the earth, over every kingdom, over every king. His kingdom is supreme and his kingdom is everlasting. It's 
always been about him. It will always be about him. No matter who on earth thinks they're the greatest, no matter who thinks they do no wrong, no matter who thinks they're the best of the best, somebody has to be the best. So whoever's at the top, God is infinitely higher. He's the king of everything. We have no reason to fear, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter if you're in exile, if you're being tormented, if you're being hated, if you're, if you're being accused of something you didn't do, no matter if your family hates you, no matter if you feel like the world's against you, no matter how deep the pit of depression is, God is king of everything. That's the point of Daniel. It's not do this diet so you can lose weight and live healthy in Babylon. Let's not get carried away with ridiculous predicting of when Christ will return. Let's see our king is king of all. Let's worship him for the king that he is. Let's be moved by this to be desperate for others who are still worshiping the kings of earth to join us in worshiping the king of kings. He's the only hope. There's nowhere else to put your hope. Why then are we still so easily so easily tempted to follow the kings of earth, tempted to allow our hearts to mislead us, to establish our own kingdom, to convince ourselves we know what's best for us and ignore the truth from our brothers and our sisters who would desire to protect us from being submitted to slavery again. Why then would we stay in our homes when our neighbors are going to hell for worshiping kings of earth? How are we not moved by this truth? It's all about Jesus. We could end every sermon with that phrase. It's all about Jesus. Because every book of the Bible, every passage we come across, all of it will be all about Jesus all the time. It's not about you. It's not about Daniel. It's about Jesus. So if we make it about you, if we make it about me, if I make it about Daniel, then we're missing it. Huge red flag. Jesus is king. It's been that way forever. And it will be that way forever. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are exiled because they've sinned against God, there's this beautiful promise. The serpent's head will be crushed. The story's the same in Daniel. That's how it fits in. We're still in exile. We heard from Peter when we started the worship gathering. Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2 makes so clear that we, the New Testament church, are still in exile. But there's hope because of Christ. There's hope because of Jesus. So we have quite an adventure ahead of us. Politics and supernatural miraculous events and dreams and visions and famous images like the fiery furnace and the disembodied hand and the lion's den and this giant statue of a man that everybody has to worship. There's, it's an epic journey. But we will not be distracted. We'll see Christ in all of it. If anyone stands up here and preaches and Christ is missing, missing, we will take them down and they'll never speak again. There's grace, but still, we have to make it about Jesus. All right, so let's, let's pray and continue in prayer. Study this book. Seek to understand it. Trust the Spirit to lead you and come prepared to be blessed by the Word of God. Not because we're gonna feel good about it, but because we know who our God is. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your word, all of it. I thank you for the Old Testament. Show us how to see that it's all your word, that you are very present and you are 
you've always been at work. You've not changed in any of this. You love us. You've called us according to your purpose. No matter what we face, you'll be for our good. And so help us, Lord, to live our lives abandoning the kingdoms of the world in order to exalt you. But also as we work through this text, show us how we are to be for the good of the kingdoms of earth, how we are to be for the good of those who are far from you, to be used by you in a way that would honor you, to bring you glory in our words and our actions and the motivations of our heart. Let us worship you with, with all that we are this morning as we sing these songs. But even more so, God, let us worship you in all of life as we live our lives in light of the truth we see in your word and specifically in Daniel. Praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.